under the headship of he who has given himself to save them. Again, their whole lives for Christians as individuals have been transformed. And so that transformation on an individual level, it leads to a transformation that extends to all of their social interactions, uh, to the makeup and the life of the church here as we join together. Uh, And as we've seen over the last few weeks, it extends to the leadership and to the hierarchy and to the makeup of the Christian family. Husbands and wives and children and parents are now able to fulfill and to be content in the roles that God has given them within the family. Leadership and submission and obedience, all of those things can occur willingly and with joy because as Paul reminds his readers, it is all done in, to, and for the Lord. It is all done to, in, and for Jesus. Uh, He is the motivation. He is the end that we are all working towards, and so all things are now done for his glory. He truly, as we saw earlier, has set us free. Now friends, as we approach the passage that is before us this morning, that that idea of freedom, that that idea of being free is going to become a, a really big point in what Paul has to say to us today. As he addresses servants, Uh, This idea of freedom would have been a a big one to them. And so knowing Christ, knowing that in him they have been set free, that he has made them rich beyond measure, secure beyond measure, happy beyond measure, is a truth that they are going to want to cling to and we are going to want to cling to as well. And so with all of that in mind, let's read this passage one more time. Colossians chapter 3 beginning in verse 18 and reading through chapter 4 and in verse 1. Let's hear God's word. It says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for you will receive the inheritance that for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you all that you also have a master who is in heaven. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever. Let's pray together. Father, your word, uh, it is living and it is active and it is sharper than any two-edged sword. And so we ask that you might use it now through the illuminating work of your Holy Spirit uh, to lay us bare uh, and to transform us after the image of the word made flesh, Jesus Christ, your Son and our Lord, in whose name we ask it. Amen. Working hard or hardly working? Well, it didn't take me very long into my ministry career uh, to figure out that most people assume that as ministers, Ben and I and Bill and others, 
that we do far more of the latter, the, the hardly working, than we do of the former, the working hard. You know, we only work on Wednesdays and Sundays, and then the rest of the time is spent, you know, in relative ease, basically doing, I guess, whatever we want to do. Uh, and so the assumption is that we are hardly working. Now, my, my goal here today is not to disparage that or not to try to, to convince you otherwise, though I would suspect that Renee and Avis and Miss Linda, if she were here, would probably have a lot to say about the truth of that statement. But my goal is simply to point out that when people say those sorts of things to me, they usually do so with the least bit, actually maybe a lot of bit, of envy in their voices. In other words, though they are on the one hand trying to disparage the ministerial profession just a little bit, they are on the other hand the least bit jealous. Like they wish that they could figure out a way to work only a couple hours a day, two days a week. And look, I kind of get that. You know, working, even according to the Bible, according to Genesis chapter 3, is hard. Uh, because of the fall, work is a difficult thing. Not only that, but very few of us are able to do what we love, able to do what gives us real joy for a job, and so that makes working even more hard. And then, of course, there are those workplace dynamics, our boss, our fellow employees, our circumstances, whatever they may be, uh, that, that makes working even more displeasurable, right? Uh, maybe it brings on discontentment. Uh, it makes us unhappy with the whole idea that we have to go to work. And so the, the assumption is, is wouldn't it be better if we could just stay at home? Or wouldn't it be better if we could at least sort of phone it in on those days, on Mondays apparently, I didn't realize that, but Mondays are supposed to be phoning it in. Wouldn't it be better if we could just phone it in on those days where we would rather go halfway or a quarter way or where our boss has made us mad or whether they don't deserve our hard work, whatever it may be. Can't we just give less than our best? Don't we have that right? Well, you would think if anybody had that right, uh, it was those who Paul is addressing here in our passage today. Uh, these bond servants, these slaves. Uh, if we're to take that, that word, that Greek word literally, it is the word slaves. Now, I recognize that translation and really this passage as a whole, it presents us uh, with several challenges right at the front. Right, right at the beginning of our study here. Uh, many have used this passage and others like it, particularly in the Old Testament, uh, to, accuse the to accuse Christianity uh, of, at the very least, accepting slavery, uh, you know, maybe condoning it, maybe at least uh, being okay with it. And maybe at the more extreme end, they have accused Christianity of propagating or promoting the idea of slavery. Now, to be sure, as a church, uh, not just New Albany Presbyterian Church, but as a universal church, we need to recognize and accept and repent of our handling of this truth throughout the ages, okay? Because there have certainly been times where the church has not always done her part 
in seeking to secure the freedom of all people, even people within the direct scope of her work and ministry. Not only that, uh, but many men and women in the name of the church have attempted uh, to justify or encourage the practice of slavery. At the very least, we must recognize that that too many times, even right now, uh, we are, as God's people, far too indifferent to the plight of those who find themselves in these circumstances. Um, In God's providence yesterday, after this sermon was already written, um, I, I read a statistic through the news, and so you can take that for what it's worth, that there are almost 50 million people throughout the world right now living in slavery. 50 million. A lot of people. And as God's church, we should have something to say about that reality. But as we recognize where we have been with this issue, we also need to recognize to whatever extent that has been our position, uh, to not address it or maybe even to propagate it, whatever, whatever extent that was the church's position, it has been the result of our own sinful hearts and not the result of what the Bible actually teaches us on the subject, Okay. Yes, the Bible recognizes the practice, both in the Old Testament and in the New, but it does so not by commending it, but by seeking to regulate it, by seeking the good of those here who are enslaved. And in regulating it, in doing that, the Bible actually sets the groundwork. It shows the basis for ultimate liberation. As one commentator puts it, the Bible's teaching on this subject was not just contrary to the prevailing cultural beliefs of that time, but it was revolutionary, both in terms of the practice as a whole and also in terms of its effects on the Christian family. Now recognize that that he is giving us this instruction connected to instructions for husbands and wives and children's and parents. Now, why, why does he do that? Well, it's because in the Old Testament, what place did servants have within the family unit? Well, they became part of the family, right? They became part of the covenant community. Abraham was to circumcise his children and his children's children and everyone who was to come into his tent. And so everyone who was a part of that circle became a part of the family. And so again, right there at the beginning, we recognize that that the Bible is, is acknowledging that these are not just objects, that these people are not just tools, but, but that they are members of the covenant community. He, they, the, the Bible is giving them dignity, is giving them worth that no one else in that time would have been willing to give. Not only that, and friends, this is the bottom line. We cannot read Genesis 1 and 2. We cannot believe in a real historical Adam and Eve who were created in the image of God, who were our first parents, and and pass that image down to all of mankind 
Every human is made in the image of God. We cannot believe that and accept the practice of slavery. More than that, as Christians who have been set free in Christ, as those who know that in Him there is no Jew or Greek as we read last time, no slave or free, as those who recognize the dignity of all of humanity and especially the dignity of those in Christ, we cannot accept the practice of slavery. We must speak against it. We must address it. Bottom line, end of story. This is actually the whole argument that Paul is making to, to Philemon in the book that's so often connected to Colossians, right? You remember Philemon has a, a slave, Onesimus, and he is encouraging Philemon to set him free. Now, he does it in a real backhanded way. He doesn't command him to do it, but he's, he's dropping hints all along the way, like, Here's what I really want you to do. I want you to set this man free because he is your brother in Christ. And so my point, and I know this is a long way to get to our, our actual text this morning, but I feel like it needed to be said. Uh, the Bible does not commend or, or promote this practice of slavery. And so the question is, and I know you're all thinking it because I thought it too, why doesn't Paul just come out and say that? It would have made our lives a whole lot easier if he had just said, hey, you've got to set them all free. Why didn't he just say those words? Well, the, the unfortunate reality is that slavery was as widely practiced and accepted in that time more so than it is even now. Uh, one commentator points out that there were 60 million slaves just in the Roman Empire alone, which granted was most of the known world at that time, but 60 million in the time when Paul was writing this. And I think Paul recognizes that he's, he's treading on controversial ground as he writes these things to, to servants, as he writes these things to masters. And he recognizes that he's probably not going to, in one letter, to one church, change the practice. And so what he does instead is he writes to those who find themselves in those circumstances and what he wants to say to them, and this is where we get to the application to us today, okay? What he wants to say to them is he wants to say, no matter what circumstances you may find yourself in, even these most difficult of circumstances, if you are a believer... You can work for the glory of God. You are obligated to work for the glory of God. For He who has truly set you free. Now, as we think about the application uh, to our own lives, what we want to do is we want to draw the, the parallel here between servants and masters, though the, the parallel is not uh, 100%. It's not one-to-one, -one, right? There, there is a, a strong difference here. But we want to draw it to our own work lives, to, to how we work for our bosses, or if you are the boss, how you work uh, with your employees. Uh, how can we, maybe in a difficult workplace environment, maybe unhappy with our circumstances, what's our obligation? How do we go out into the world and work 
Friends, Paul is, is going to give us some instruction here. What he's going to tell us is that we can't hardly work. But we need to, in har- all things, uh, be working hard. And so the first thing I want you to notice in, in this passage, if you have your outline there before you, it's, uh, the first thing is an exhaustive command. An exhaustive command. And you see it there in verse 22. Uh, he says, bond servants, obey in everything. Obey. And notice there, there's no wiggle room, right? It's exhaustive in its scope. They are just like children. Servants are to obey in all things. Now again, the, the point is not that we're to do unethical things, that we're to do ungodly things. Clearly there's a line that we draw in the sand there. But to the degree that our masters or our bosses or whoever command things within God's will that are in line with his word, then we have an obligation to obey. Again, we're getting into some of that authority that God has given, and we see that there is authority even in social structure, that that he has set it up this way for a purpose, and that's hard for all of our hearts. We have an obligation to obey. And then secondly, you notice that it's exhaustive in its execution. And that's not a great word. But what I mean by that is it's obvious that that servants are to do the things that their masters command. But notice how they are to do it. Not by eye service. Not as people pleasers. But with sincerity of heart. In other words, our attitudes matter in how we do our jobs. I'm sure I've told you this before, but one of the first jobs I had, I was actually in high school when I started working there, and then it was the job that got me and Renee through college. I worked at Hibbett Sporting Goods here and in Starville and in Chupelo all over the place. I traveled around. Um, But every few months, the, the general manager or the regional manager, he would come to the store. And so you can imagine when we knew he was coming, he would always make the mistake of telling us he was coming rather than just showing up, which was not a mistake for us, but it was a mistake on his part. Because when we knew he was coming, man, we would tighten up. We would clean up everything. We would put on all of our best, you know, greeting customers, really doing our good job of selling our shoes. Like it was, we were running a tight ship when he was there. The problem was, is that when he left, guess what happened? We just went right back to doing things the way we always did. The, the ship, it was not tight after that, okay? Got a little bit loose. Now, our motivation there was, one, we didn't want to get in trouble. Two, we wanted to make ourselves look good in front of the boss, right? Ultimately, it, we weren't doing it for any good reason other than it was just pure selfishness. We, we were doing it for ourselves. Now I imagine I'm not alone in that. I hope, I cannot believe that I'm alone in doing things like that. I think we all recognize the truth that when the boss shows up, we got to tighten up, right? Well, Paul says that for Christian servants, Christian employees, that type of attitude, that type of kind of self-promotion, it won't fly. They're not to work for, for selfish ambition. Uh, Simply to to get by, but they are to work with sincere hearts, fearing the Lord. 
Friends, I'm going to be honest with you. As, even as I say that, I recognize the, the difficulty in it, how hard that is to work and do the things that we're called to do with sincerity of heart. Like, getting stuff done is one thing. I can get it done, but when, you, when Paul asked me to do it with a good attitude, that's a whole different situation, right? Yet that's the call that he gives us. And then notice it's exhaustive thirdly because it is done in the sight of the Lord who sees all and who knows all. You know, we may trick our boss, we may trick our fellow employees, but we can't trick him. If we do it halfway, if we do it with a bad attitude, nobody else may know, but he knows. He knows and he sees. And so the command here to obey, it is exhaustive in every way. Secondly, I want you to notice that Paul points us also, not just to an exhaustive command, but also to an exhaustive freedom. Let me ask you this. How is it, saying what we've already said, how is it that Paul can ask us to work in this way? You know, doesn't, doesn't Paul know how hard work can be? Doesn't he know how bad we hate our jobs? Doesn't he know how difficult our boss is? Doesn't he know how bad we just need to, to get ahead in whatever it is that we're doing? Well, friends, I suspect that Paul would and does recognize that and that he does acknowledge that to varying degrees. But he also recognizes that there are truths that are greater than all of those things. For instance, Paul can call us to work in this way because he understands that work is a good thing. That it's a good thing given to us by God. Friends, I think we forget sometimes that work did not enter into the world after the fall. Certainly, work became harder after the fall, but work was a reality before that. It was a creational ordinance. 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 Sorry, I was wrong. Ordinance. You got me. God called Adam and Eve to have dominion, right? To, to tend the garden. They had roles. They had jobs to do. It was work. Again, it was not work as we know it, but it was work nonetheless. They were to work for six days and to rest on the seventh. And so Paul can say work heartily. Because he recognizes that this is a good thing. That this is what we were made, in some sense, to do. We were made to work for the Lord. To glorify Him through our actions. And part of that is through our work. Secondly, notice we are free to work because as Christians, and this is a big one. If you don't hear anything else I say today, you need to hear this if you're struggling in your job. As Christians, we aren't working for our boss. We are not working for any man. We're really not working for ourselves. No, we are working for the Lord. We are working to serve Him. Now look, this reality is both incredible and daunting all at the same time. It's incredible because it means 
in some sense, you can get out of the, the quote-unquote rat race. What I mean by that is not that we can stop going to work. Instead, what I mean is we don't have to, to try to make ourselves look good anymore. We don't have to fight tooth and nail to get up the corporate ladder. We don't have to work ourselves to death simply to please men. We can work with obedience. We can work sincerity of heart even for a bad boss. Even for one who is not good because we recognize that what we're doing is not for him. We're doing it for God. We're doing it for the Lord, even under the hardest circumstances. And friends, these slaves certainly knew that. There was joy. There could be contentment. I'm going to say that word to you again. Contentment. We can be satisfied. Even here, because our motivation is Him, right? He has freed us to work for Him. At the same time, this is a daunting truth. Because again, we can't fool him. You know, we, we may be tempted to cut corners. We may be tempted to skip a step here or there, to do things halfway, and nobody else may know that we're doing it. But the one who saves us, he knows that we're doing it. He, he knows the reality of our hearts. Friends, he's not impressed with eye candy. He, he's not impressed with just outward appearances. He looks at the heart. And so recognizing that we work for the Lord, it leads us to great joy, but it also should lead us to great repentance, right? It should lead us to fall down before him and to, to ask for forgiveness. So we work because we're working for the Lord. And then thirdly and finally, notice we are free to work because we recognize the, the true wages of both godly and ungodly work, okay? On the one hand, we can work hard. Even in an underpaid job, we can work feeling like we aren't getting what we deserve and still be content because we have the, the larger perspective here of knowing that our true reward, our true inheritance is not here. Where moth and rust can destroy but it is laid up for us in heaven by the Lord himself. In other words, no man or woman may recognize your hard work, but God promises here that he recognizes it. And his reward and his inheritance are eternal. Now, I, have, I suspect that people are rolling their eyes at me right now. I don't see that. I'm not really looking either because I don't want to see it. But I I've I believe that somebody, at least inwardly, is rolling their eyes at me right now. Because we recognize that it's easy for me to say this. It's a whole lot harder to do. But friends, if we believe Scripture, if we believe that there is an eternity, and that God is there, and that we're going to spend the rest of our days with Him in eternity, then this is what we have to believe. That this is not the end. That what's happening here is just a small portion of a larger reality. And that God has promised to lay up for us treasures in heaven. 
we recognize how, how countercultural this is in America, where everyone is chasing a dollar, where everyone is striving to get what they deserve. And that includes many Christians. But again, our perspective is not limited to the temporal. It's not limited to things that are passing away. If we believe what we claim to believe, then we recognize that we want things in the new heavens, in the new earth. We want things with our Savior. And so that's what we're working for. We're working for that. Now, on the other hand, we work hard because we also recognize that the wages of disobedience, as he says in verse 25, are that we will be paid back for our wrongdoings. Just as, as there will be rewards for those who have been faithful uh, in God's providence, and we don't really recognize how this works because we know that we are resting in him and him alone, but this is what he says, that there will be uh, a reality uh, for wrongdoers. And there is no partiality, it says. And so we work. We work hard because we're working for the Lord. We recognize the, the truth of the inheritance. And quickly, it's exhaustive. And it applies to bosses too there in chapter 4 and in verse 1. I don't want to skip over that. Bosses, you are to be just and fair, uh, knowing that you have a master in heaven who sees how you lead, who has given you the authority that you have. And so if you are a boss here today, you need to read chapter 4 and in verse 1 and take it to heart. But as we try to wrap this up this morning, I just quickly want to make two points of application. And they're there on your sheet before you. The first one is that nobody should work harder than Christians. Nobody. Because nobody has a better motivation than Christians. Let me say that to you again. If you are a Christian here today, nobody at your workplace should work harder than you because nobody has the motivation that you have, which is who? It is the Lord that you're working for. And then secondly, nobody should be as content as Christians because nobody has the security or the surety both now and long term that we have. And who is that security? Again, it is the Lord. Now, does that mean that we have to stay in our jobs forever? Does that mean you have to be in a bad job under bad circumstances for the rest of your life and just be content with it? No. Thankfully, we live in a place where changing jobs is not all that difficult. But what I do want to say to you is that as long as God has you where you are, walk with Him. As long as he leaves you in that place, you give your best knowing that you are serving the Lord. And so whatever you are, whether you are the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, whether you're making minimum wage somewhere, if you are a student or an athlete or a stay-at-home parent, I don't care what you're doing, do it all to the glory of the God. If you are playing tiddlywinks in the yard, do it hard. Do it for the Lord. If you are a Christian, then do all things to the best of your ability, not to honor yourself, but to honor the one who has saved you, 
Friends, what a, what a witness that would be to a lost world. What a witness to a world who believes the complete opposite of everything I have said up here this morning. What a privilege it is to serve and to walk and to work for our Savior as we pray together. Father God, we ask that you would uh, give us hearts that, that long to serve you in this way. Uh, Lord, we recognize how hard this is. Uh, the day in and the day out grind of our jobs is often overwhelming. Uh, we are often unsatisfied. Uh, we often have to face difficult circumstances. Uh, and yet, Father, we know that you are a sovereign God uh, who puts us in very specific places at very specific times. And so we ask that as long as you have us wherever we may be, that you would give us the courage and the strength and the perseverance uh, to work for your glory, to work hard wherever it is, and that through that hard work, people would not see us, they would not see the things that we are doing, but they would see our Savior. They would wonder, why is it that this person is so committed to hard work? And we would have the opportunity to say, it's because we are working for the one who has saved us. Lord, we thank you that we can look forward to an eternal rest, a rest that Christ has even now achieved for us. In eternity, where we will be with Him, we will rest in His presence. And so, Lord, we ask that you would motivate us by that now. Lord, always keep Jesus before our eyes. We ask it in His name. Amen. Closing hymn this morning uh, is hymn number 584. We're going to sing verses 1, 3, 5, and 6 of Go Labor On. 1, 3, 5, and 6. If you would please stand, we'll sing together. Amen.